2: Welcome to episode thirty-four of the Podium and Panel podcast. Today we're going to discuss two cases that were argued in the Seventh Circuit and one that was recently argued in the Indiana Appellate Court. The first is Boyne versus American Muslims for Palatine, a case involving Palestine. Palestine. Maybe they're for Palestine,
0: Palestine too, yeah. but 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 I'm quite yeah. certain they're for Palestine.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, Palestine. What am I doing here? A case involving terrorism and alter ego entities. Recently argued before the Seventh Circuit, and as we'll get into, very confusing what uh, exactly the Boynes were trying to do there. The second case is Gachens versus Winnebago County, a case involving the Fourth Amendment and qualified immunity, a topic that Pat and I have discussed often on this podcast. The third and final case is Denman versus St. Vincent, in which the plaintiff sued a hospital and her practice group for defamation, fraud, constructive fraud, and negligent misrepresentation. And the jury awarded her four point seven five million dollars, only to have the trial court reduce the judgment by one point two five million. And the judge in that case also, uh, in terms of some judgment uh, interest,
0: uh, pre-judgment the, interest. He, he interest, took away to the pre-judgment interest. Due to COVID, and very very strange. Yeah. Before we get before we jump into the first case stand, I want to give everybody a warning. These case, the facts of these cases, all three of them are crazy. They are. They're nuts. Yeah. So if you don't understand what's going on, join us. We don't know what's going on in some of these. The facts of these things are really kind of amazing. So uh, we're going to do our best. But the facts are really, really bizarre in each of these cases for different reasons. So sure. go, go ahead t- talk about the first case, the Boehm case, Dan.
2: Yeah, with that, let's turn to, to Boehm. In this case, plaintiffs were two parents of a teenager who was killed by terrorists in Israel and obtained a $156 million judgment against those organizations in America who allegedly supported the people responsible for the terrorist uh, killing. The plaintiff's claims included allegations under the Anti-Terrorism Act, or the ATA. The plaintiff collected only about $14,000 of the judgment before the allegedly responsible entities were dissolved. Several years later, uh, entities allegedly having the same owners and others' ties appear, and the plaintiffs filed suit in federal court attempting to collect on the original judgment of $156 million. This new action was premised on seeking a declaratory judgment under the ATA and state law theories of alter ego and such. And it's, again, as we'll get into in the oral arguments, uh, not entirely clear what the D.J. was intended to do. The district court dismissed the claim to the new suit under Rule 12b6, something we've talked about often on this show, finding a lack of subject matter jurisdiction as the case neither arises under federal law nor apparently is there diversity of citizenship. Uh, Dan, I think is, it's
0: under 12b1, actually. 12b1, yeah. I, I, that's, uh, that's a typo. Uh, we, 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 just a, a Look behind the screen, people. We have notes, and the notes are yep. wrong. It's a 12b1, not a 12b6. Yeah, that's lack right. Lack of subject matter jurisdiction. That's my fault. Uh,
2: that, that's that's uh, ne- neither one of our faults. That's okay. And uh, and uh, there, there's pl- plainly sufficient amounts in controversy. Uh, the district court held that plaintiffs had not shown that there was a transfer of a- assets, substantially identical management, an overlap in leadership, or the same business purpose. The Seventh Circuit uh, heard this case recently, and the judges seemed extremely skeptical of the defendant's theory of defense truly being on subject matter jurisdiction grounds, as it seemed in their arguments and in their briefing and everything else that they were getting at the merits of the case. The court also was wondering about discovery that was allowed and whether it was truly limited as it was claimed. Pat, tell us about the oral arguments in this very interesting and confusing case.
0: Thanks, Dan. So I I want to start with something that's kind of interesting, which is the plaintiffs really want to be in state court or in federal court Right. And, and they are fighting like hell to stay there. And it's unclear why. Um, the We've had cases, the Thornley versus Clearview case comes to mind that we talked about early on in the podcast, uh, episode two, I believe, where, where a plaintiff really, really didn't want to be in federal court and may have pled their way out of court in so doing. But these guys want to be in federal court. And I and, and the reason, while I could understand why in Thornley they really wanted to be in state court and not be in federal court for a whole host of reasons, I'm not sure I understand why in a case where you have a judgment and it seems they're trying to collect on it unsuccessfully, the ca- the collection action continues in front of Judge Cole, Magistrate Judge Cole in the Northern District of Illinois. Right. Um, it's unclear what's really going on there. There was a motion to combine this case, the the declaratory judgment and alter ego case with the enforcement action from the original case. It's also unclear why these actions just weren't brought in the enforcement action. If these these defendants are alleged to have assets that belong to the defendants that the plaintiffs are trying to collect from, why? I I don't know. It, It really doesn't make any sense what they're... I'm sure there's a good reason. It's just not clear from what we have the purpose. We, we might try
2: to uh, get the appellant advocate on uh, sometime. I know him very well from my Lord Bissell days, and just maybe he can give us some additional insights of what's really going on behind the scenes here.
0: Th- th- there's got to be a good reason why they're doing what they're trying to do. These are very good lawyers, as is obvious from the, from the oral argument. Uh, it, it just isn't clear what's going on. So- now we get to okay. We have this 12b-1 issue, and we've kind of talked about this in our la- uh, an episode recently on Rivera versus Allstate. You get to the end of a case, and the court goes, "Nope, no jurisdiction. Go home. Go to go to state court." Uh, and this idea that there has to be subject matter jurisdiction in order for the court to exercise to to hear the case, which is the Bell versus Hood case, which is what we heard. You hear a lot of in this argument. The problem is in this case is that. There's this mixture of the, um, merits issues and the subject matter jurisdictional issues is if you're in trying to argue that there's no subject matter jurisdiction, the defendants are really saying, we're not alter egos of these entities. Therefore, there's no subject matter jurisdiction. It's like, well, what now? This isn't a 12B1. This is either a, this starts to sound a lot like a rule 56, a, a, a motion for summary judgment.
2: And, and there was some the, discussions that, uh, in
0: oral argument about
2: that. About this, could be
0: a Rule Fifty Six. Exactly. This is a this is a Rule Fifty Six motion. Why? What? What? there was discovery on this, it was limited, but limited in quotation marks. I mean, not limited. It didn't seem no. they did like six depositions. They got documents. They they wanted more. Uh, and, and the refrain throughout was, "This sounds like the merits." It sounds like you're talking about the merits of this dispute. It doesn't sound like you're talking about subject matter jurisdiction, and and the the district court judge is, is judge is Judge Coleman, who is an excellent judge. Um, she was the she was coincidentally the ju- district court judge in the Thornley matter. She was, um, and and so that uh, there, it's really hard to understand what why they got so much into the merits in trying to decide this 12b1 issue because if you're going to get into merits you've got sub- you, you 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 you've gone beyond the scope of that motion but the other problem is where's the hook a declaratory judgment action under the ata to do what and then an alter, eir- alter eager theory under state law to which the first questions were are we going to apply federal common law Of of alter ego, are we going to apply Illinois substantive law to those claims? And of course, all law law, all lawyers know there is no federal common law except when there is, right? uh, Because Erie is a mess, and no one knows what the what's going on there. Uh, So there's not even supposed to be such a thing as federal common law following Erie. But we all know that there is when it's convenient for there to be such a thing. that's of course a fraud a farce there of course is federal common law there's a ton of it and right. the idea that there isn't is is is, is to play ostrich it's it's so, similar
2: it's similar to the argument you often hear that there's no federal insurance law and then you see the FDIC and ERISA and social you know uh, social security insurance and you know
0: okay well there may not be federal insurance law but there's the federal version of the state insurance law uh, yeah. they they do they they do their own thing uh the Seventh Circuit, let's just say, is not particularly good with Illinois insurance law. Um, you're oftentimes better off in Illinois state court on insurance law issues because the Illinois Appellate Court and the Illinois Supreme Court are far better on Illinois insurance law than is the Seventh Circuit. Um, and and many of the district court judges who come from either a federal defender or a uh, uh assistant US attorney have no experience in insurance whatsoever um not it's not a, it's not a criticism but it's just the truth right uh, they they don't have much experience in it. right uh, as we heard on the special podcast last week judge easterbrook say we're generalists that's true state court judges are specialists and we've talked about this before they generally practiced in the area and they certainly have practiced in the area once they've been on the ju- been on the bench for a little while in the area that they hear they hear those cases constantly At that least. is not the case in federal court at, the, at least at the at the trial court level and you know, exactly like, at the yeah. trial court level exactly, so we we uh, sorry we don't know more but it's a really interesting case because it deals with this giant judgment for which very little has been collected and this and, and you can see if this case proceeds uh, um, you know potentially foreign policy implications and uh, which is often one of the issues that comes up in subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, so a a ton of things that are very interesting, but really hard to sort through, but be careful, don't mix your merits with your subject matter jurisdiction. Try to keep those things apart. Dan, do we have anything else we need to talk about on this one before we move to the Gachins case?
2: I I think the only thing is that at one point, I think it was Judge Scudder asked uh, the appellant, you know, why are we here on a 12B1? Is it as simple as that the defendants pled it? And the response was yes. And the district court, granted the 12b1 motion. So I think that uh, the judges were confused why, why this was dismissed on a 12b1. And uh, the appellate got a lot of hypotheticals about, okay, change the fact patterns and, you know, uh, 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 pressed on, on various hypos that, that seemed to really not be germane to the, the exact issues here.
0: They, they weren't only not germane, they, they were easily distinguishable. And I thought counsel parried them pretty well. Um they really didn't get at the issue. The, the court was really struggling with this. And at one point, I think it was Judge Scudder that said, why didn't you just say 12B1 has nothing to do with this case? Because it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with this case. Right. Um, which is a very strange thing to say that a procedure okay. doesn't have anything to do with the case. Right. I, I I, I think he may be right, but it's just, it's just very strange. He also one time said, sounds to me like merits. Exactly.
2: Which I think is exactly... Uh, As you noted, it was so blended, it's kind of cart and horse. How can you talk about alter ego without talking about whether the ATA applies? Uh, I mean, it's just it's a convoluted
0: case. It, It really is. And they've they've tried everything they can to plead their way. They've done that. And obviously, to keep themselves in federal court for reasons that aren't immediately clear. There's no reason why if there's personal jurisdiction in a federal court in Illinois, then there's personal jurisdiction over these defendants in state court. They just got to get to the right county. I, I assume it's Cook. It doesn't have to be. But they, they, they've they got personal jurisdiction, so why not go there? I, I don't know why. They obviously have reasons. It's really unclear why. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back and talk about Gations versus Winnebago County. We're back for segment two of episode 34 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And we're going to talk about now Gachens versus Winnebago County. And this case deals with something we've talked about repeatedly on the podcast, qualified immunity. Only in this case, I think, Dan, this is uh, one where I, I think the government officials weren't uh, may have done the right thing. I think so. So in this case, by the way, you don't want a neighbor like this. Uh, Miss Eads, the neighbor of the plaintiff Miss Gaetans, believes that Miss Gaetans is having a medical emergency after she gets a call from the doctor uh, and calls the Loves Park police that uh, and says that she's having a medical emergency. They come to the house. She they get there. She says, "You know what? I actually don't think she's in this house. I think she's in her Rockford house." For those that aren't familiar, Loves Park is a suburb of of Rockford, um, and Notwithstanding that, because they see some mail out on the stoop and they see garbage not having been taken out and they smell a horrible smell coming from the house, the police officers take the decision to go inside the house. And in the house, they find 39 cats, kitty litter boxes, but no litter, no food, no water for the animals. Uh, and the firemen, the smell was so bad when the firemen went in, they had to wear self-contained app- uh, breathing apparatus before they... Uh, Went in and dealt with the smell. We're to play a lengthy segment from, and by lengthy I mean three minutes, uh, from the oral argument that kind of uh, encapsulates the argument. And Judge Scudder comes in at the end and really kind of, really kind of frames the issue, what the issue is, which is how can this be a Fourth Amendment violation? And there's also a question from one of the other judges about, well, what would you have done, counsel for appellant, had you been faced with this circumstance? Um, you know, essentially asking, was the conduct of the police reasonable? As a consequence of what happened here, The they they went into her house. So there's this Fourth Amendment claim. You then have her house gets condemned and the cats get seized. So uh, there's these three separate claims. So with that, we will... Um, play this se- this section from the oral argument.
1: In the manner in
0: which they saw fit, by sort of telling Ms. Eads, we, understand, we appreciate the fact that you don't want us to go into the house, but based upon all these facts and circumstances that we see, we think we should go into the house and make sure that she's okay if she's there. She key isn't that
1: they, she didn't want them to go into the house. It's that she didn't think she was in the house. She thought that she was in the Brockford house because of what she had viewed that day. And she related this to the, the police officers. So... The, well, she wasn't sure, so what's the difference? Why, why should the police not go in? Well, because, because of the... She had an crime. idea that she wasn't there? Yes, she, she believed that she wasn't there. She hadn't she'd been watching the house all day. She hadn't seen anything. Um, she hadn't seen the plaintiff enter or leave. The, the entire day. She what about the garbage, she, the mail, and all the other items? Well, that was the garbage day. So her garbage hadn't been taken out that day. Um, the mail, she hadn't actually looked inside the mailbox to determine whether or not there was any you know, mail there. I think it was just a, simply that there was a package on the front door. All of those things are consistent with the fact that she may have not been in the house, not that she was in the house requiring an emergency. So that's aid. why the and doctor called her? So the doctor called her because she decided to to go home instead of directly going to um, the hospital and she told the doctor that she wanted to um if you were a policeman under the circumstances would you have gone in if i was a policeman in the circumstances and she was begging me to go to her other house because she believed that she was out there on the other house i don't believe that i would have and i thought it was an emergency i would have gone where the person who told me the emergency, you know, who gave me the information regarding the emergency, where they believe the plaintiff to be, and in this case, it wasn't in the Loves Park House. And furthermore, I would have attempted there any number of things pretty. she could have done. Hi, I don't, Sorry. I don't think, Mr. Finkit, with all respect, you're being fair to Miss Eads' testimony. Okay, we don't have to guess it was what Miss Eaves thought. She testified under oath what she thought and she testified that she believed that her neighbor was experiencing a medical emergency she wanted help from the police department and she simultaneously told them i think she may well be in rockford so how does that violate any aspect of the fourth amendment for the police department to act upon that information
0: And that really gets to the heart of the issue. Uh, Judge Scudder, those are the first comments from Judge Scudder in the argument. Uh, and they almost, when you listen to it, they almost, they're about 10 minutes into the argument, it almost hit like a bolt of lightning. What are we doing here? Why are we here? Um, so as as he mentions, it's about the Fourth Amendment. And by the way, if she was so concerned, why didn't she call the Rockford police, not the the Loves Park police. If she thought the woman was in Rockford and not in Love's Park, one doesn't understand that. With that, Dan, why don't you tell us more about the oral argument and really the the 800 pound gorilla in the room, which is the Caniglia case which came down um, shortly before this case uh, was argued at the Supreme Court and dealt with the community care exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant exception, warrant requirement and essentially held that doesn't exist. This is essentially what we're talking about here, community care uh, issues. So, Dan, why don't you tell us about Coniglia and the oral argument, as well as Monell, which is another issue that came up.
2: Thank, thanks, Pat. And not not to defend Eads, but uh, she probably doesn't know where the Rockford house is. And, I mean, she's in some ways doing probably the right thing. She gets a call from the doctor saying, hey, where the hell is your neighbor? You know, she's uh, and she must have been given a number by 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 the. Uh, Maybe she was the neighbor. emergency
0: contact right. for, the, yeah. for the for the yeah. for the
2: lady. And uh, the other thing is, is up in that area, my, my son goes to Beloit, so I drive through Rockford and Loves Park pretty often. There, there's no hospital in Loves Park. The hospital's in Rockford. There's a hospital in Beloit, or medical facility. But in between in Loves Park, there's nothing. So who knows? Um, Caniglia versus Strom, uh, as you mentioned, Pat, was argued in March of this year and and decided on May 17th. It was a unanimous decision dealing with Fourth Amendment and warrantless searches and this caregiver... Uh, exception. Uh, what happened in Caniglia was the husband uh, was having an argument with his wife. He took out his handgun. He put it on the dining room table and said, uh, shoot me and get it over with. And the wife was upset. She left. She stayed at a hotel overnight. Next morning, she tries to call her husband. He's incommunicado. So she calls the police and says, hey, I worry about my husband. He, he seems suicidal. Let's go to the house. She goes with them. They find him on the back porch. And, and he's there. He seems kind of despondent. He's, he's sitting there, uh, but he agrees to go for psychiatric evaluation. The police assure him we're not going to take your guns. We're not going to do anything else.
0: Well, he, he would only go on the condition right. that they did. They, they won't.
2: And they assured him not going to happen. And then as soon as he left, of course, in the ambulance, they went in the house and confiscated all of his guns. And uh, the, the, he sued uh, for Fourth Amendment violations for warrantless searches
0: because when he came out of the out of the psychiatric evaluation, they found he didn't have any problems. They wouldn't right. give him his guns back. Right, right. And
2: and the, the the case centered around whether the the community caretaking exception to the warrant requirement uh, applies. There's a case called Katie versus Dombrowski, uh, which had to do with cars. And uh, as we all know from the jurisprudence over the last several decades from the Supreme Court, in your car you don't have extensive. Uh, Privacy and, and and protections as as much as you do in the home. The district court actually granted summary judgment to the officers. Uh, the first circuit affirmed, uh, extrapolating from uh, the court's decision in Katie. And then this this court said uh, neither the holding nor the logic of Katie justifies such warrantless searches and seizures in the home. And uh, there there were several concurrences in this case. Chief Justice Roberts wrote a very short one. Alito wrote one, and then Justice Kavanaugh wrote one as well. And they talked about some of these exceptions. And one of the exceptions was, in fact, uh, for Kavanaugh was, in fact, this kind of the old lady or old person next door. It had come and it came up a lot and, of oral argument. And it came up a lot of oral argument. And and, and uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, mentions and cites in a footnote that thirty two thousand uh, elderly people uh, fall and and have serious or or injuries or death as a result. uh, He brought that up in oral argument. He did. So, so, uh, uh, Caliglia, uh, Caliglia, Coniglia. Yeah. Different uh, matter. Uh, uh, was big at play at at here. And like you said, uh, Pat,
0: it was, is very much the 800 pound, a guerrilla in oral arguments, uh, and, and if we could go back real quick to you—you kind of, you, uh, Justice Alito's concurrence dealt with red flag laws and yep. guns were involved in this case. Right. So you have, so his his concern really was that. But he said there still is an exigency cer- uh, exception right. to the warrant requirement. So the question really here is: Is there exigent circumstances sufficient to overcome the warrant requirement for them to go in and search this house and see if this woman in, is in fact having a problem?
2: And in this case, the factors you cited to, although there was some dispute, there were uh, veterinarians that uh, a couple and, and uh, the, the leading people with cat, I don't know, that they were mentioned in the Animal control, The animal control yeah. people. They had come recently to the house and said the smell wasn't quite so bad or that it wasn't intolerable. But again, uh, I, I've, uh, we have two cats. We got them from a cat shelter where they had probably 50 or 75 cats in the house. So if you're around that and that's kind of your thing, you might have a different tolerance or a different level of what exactly constitutes, you know, offensive or bad odors, or you just might be used to it, right? From being around cats all the time. As you mentioned, in addition to, to the Coniglia case, there was also the Menel Doctrine, and under this doctrine, a municipality can be held liable for an officer's actions when the plaintiff establishes the officer violated their constitutional rights, and that violation resulted from an official municipal policy an unofficial custom, or because the municipality was deliberately indifferent in a failure to train or supervise the officer. Uh, however, this narrow interpretation may not benefit all plaintiffs, and here it probably doesn't, because again, it's it's unclear what exactly policy would be uh, that would would uh, suggest that they were just uh,
0: disregarding uh, the community's. Well, the Monell claim, I think, dealt with the uh con- condemnation of the house by the fire yeah. chief and whether he had the authority to And he the argument was he isn't the chief law enforcement officer of winnebago county neither are the animal control people only the state's attorney is and yep. because that person wasn't involved you can't have a manile claim in these circumstances right maybe that's right maybe it's not i think we'll find out in the argument opinion. and i
2: think the animal control people also were under the monell doctrine as well right so we've talked extensively, as Pat said, about qualified immunity and, you know, we're not fans of it in the two prongs. And there's a lot of discussion and all argument about these two prongs. First is clearly established prong, uh, whether there's a clearly established.
0: Uh, well, that's the second prong. The first prong is, is yeah. did you violate their rights in the first instance? And the problem is they skip the first prong and right. go to the second prong so that you, you don't get a development of the law. And so the first prong is, was this a violation of the Fourth Amendment in the first instance, which is why you have Judge Scudder asking that question. How is this a violation of the Fourth Amendment?
2: But, but you know, as we've talked about, though, uh, what I meant to say is that the clearly established is often the first one that's actually addressed, as we've right. talked about in many of these clearly you know, uh, uh, qualified immunity cases um, and why courts do that, who knows. But they're allowed to do that, and they do it repeatedly. And it does create issues on appeal and, and, uh, sorting those things out. Um, as, as the tape Pat played mentioned, uh, judge Scudder was very skeptical and, and he said it wasn't even close to accurate. What was said by, uh, by the witness Eads, uh, no, no, by, by counsel, counsel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, his description of what Eads had said. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, and One of the things that was also argued is, is that uh, as we talked about in an earlier episode with the cops that did not go to the house after a 911 call, uh, Scudder seemed to suggest that we would have had a reverse situation here. If, if the cops had said, okay, we're going to go to Rockford or call the Rockford police, we're going to go to lunch, and then came back, and it turns out that the uh, uh, person in the house has actually collapsed, dead, or, or, or very injured, then they would have filed a, a, a suit right against the police officers and everybody else for failing to respond to a 911 call uh, we know there's no duty to do that but in, in any event we would have been on the flip side of it and so a very very uh, interesting uh, case so um, and, and as Pat said I think those three minutes that he played uh, very representative of the arguments and and, and the oral argument uh it, it, it went like that repeatedly because, again, uh, it, it's, you know, the, the and that clip that you played as well, Pat, uh, the, the advocate said that uh, she begged them not to go in that house. She didn't beg them. She just said, hey, I don't think she's in that house. I've been watching it all day, which reminds me of my old neighborhoods when I, when I was growing up, right? All the families watched each other all the time and would call each other and say, hey, you know, somebody was in front of your house. You know, they stopped. You know, smoking a cigarette and for whatever right there's just this kind of neighborhood watch group and uh, uh so she, she must every day look out at, at the neighbor's house to see if there's any activity uh who knows but uh i i, th- I, I think that three minute clip was very representative of the, of the skepticism of the of the panel in terms of this situation here
0: we try to select well so with that, we'll take our next break and come back for segment three and discuss Denman versus St. Vincent Carmel Hospital. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're
2: back for segment three of episode 34, and our third case today is from the Indiana Appellate Court, Denman. In this case, in December of 2017, a nurse at St. Vincent Carmel Hospital reported to her superior that the prior evening... She had smelled alcohol in the breath of Rebecca Denman, M.D., who had stopped in while on call. Ten days later, the chief medical officer of Dr. Denman's employer, St. Vincent Medical Group, directed her to submit to an Indiana State Medical Association assessment, following which Dr. Denman was put on leave. She received six weeks of treatment for alcohol use disorder and returned to her job with a five-year ISMA alcohol monitoring contract in place. Believing that the hospital and the the, uh, employer group failed to follow written policy uh, requiring immediate reporting and testing of a physician suspected of alcohol use at work and that they misled her about whether a peer review process had occurred, the doctor sued, among others, the hospital and the uh, St. Vincent's Medical Group. She alleged defamation, fraud, constructive fraud, negligent misrepresentation, and tortious interference with an employment relationship. The jury found against the hospital and against St. Vincent Medical Group and awarded Dr. Denman $4.75 million. The trial court reduced the award to $3.5 million, finding that the fraud, constructive fraud, negligent misrepresentation damages were duplicative. And as Pat will talk about, there was a lot of talk about the collapsing of those three into one potential cause of action. Uh, the trial court also told act- accrual pre prejudgment interest from mid-March to mid-June 2020 pursuant to the COVID-related Indiana Supreme Court emergency order. Dr. Diamond on appeal asserts that the trial court in- improperly reduced her damages, that the tolling of the pre-judgment was a constitutional taking, and the trial court erred by not adding the award of prejudgment interest to the judgment. The hospital and St. Vincent Medical Group assert that the trial court should have granted su- summary judgment or alternatively judgment on the evidence on all of Dr. Demin's claims. The uh, Indiana Hospital Association filed an amicus curiae brief, arguing that the nurse's report was prect- protected by qualified privilege. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this
0: case. Waiver, 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 waiver. That was the word of the day for it was. the counsel for appellant. Essentially, her argument was they didn't make. I'm not sure what arguments they made because no, because apparently all of them, according to her, were waived. I don't know if that's true. It was plain in the oral argument that counsel for Applee and counsel for appellant did not like each other. No, uh, they, they were not fans. When it is not typical that you call opposing counsel her or him. It's counsel or you refer to the party. Uh, sometimes you they is okay, you know, that they say this, they say that. But what she just said, you know, <laughs> it was kind of the tenor of that argument. Um, so, and it's too it's too numerous to go through all of the claims of waiver, but it did get to the point where counsel for appellants like, well, they, they didn't make that argument. They waived that argument, oh, this kind of thing. I think it's felt helpful to kind of flush out the facts a little bit more. So it seems that the doctor, Dr. Denman, comes into the uh, into the unit. She's alleged to get into an argument, throw her purse, be agitated for the reasons that are unclear. Get, and there's yes. a dispute as to whether any of that happened. Right, uh, in whether the first got, instance,
2: whether she got in the face of the nurse or whether she was six right. feet at all times. Right,
0: she said she'd been, you know, some distance from people at all times. The nurse who made this report said she was up in her face and yelling at her, and it was during this time that she smelled alcohol. So naturally, when you're when you're working with an obstetrician who you think has been drinking, whether they're drunk or not is kind of beside the point. Uh, you let them do a couple things. You let them go provide treatment to a pregnant lady, uh, a perform a procedure, uh, and, and you watch that procedure, and then you let them get in their car and go home. Uh, you let them drive. That, that's what you do. Uh, at least that's what this nurse did. And you don't tell anybody about that for about 12 hours, and you write an email that says, I, I witnessed some unprofessional conduct. Unprofessional conduct? Excuse me. Uh, That's a bit more than unprofessional conduct. That we're going to get back to that in a minute, because that may bear on the privilege that Dan mentioned. So the counsel for appellant described this email as containing falsehood, after misrepresentation, after falsehood uh, about what she saw and whether she had access to, uh, whether she knew what to do. She was told by a colleague. It was unclear the relationship. In the hierarchy with this college, college says, you need to tell your supervisor right now. She didn't do that. She writes an email about 12 hours later. By that time, Denman is off call, it seems, and back home or, or someplace else. Uh,
2: the, the only other thing she did was she uh, asked other nurses, and there were two or three other people before the email that said, You know, I smelled alcohol. Did you s- smell or see? Anything? And no-
0: nobody else did. And the thing was, with regards to the publication, of the the statements is apparently it's a knitting club over at that hospital because everybody found out about it. And the claim was, is that 10 people were taught, three to 10 people were talking about the next morning. And so also with regards to the privilege is had there been excessive publication because the nurse had admitted to, to telling at least three and may have told as many as five people about this claim that Dr. Denman was uh, had been drinking while she was uh, while she was working. It also was interesting to note that the head of the medical group said yeah when I'm on call I have a couple of drinks that's good to know right. uh, that, that would steer clear of, of having your baby delivered there it seems if even the head of the group admits in, in under oath at trial that he's having a couple swigs while he's uh, while he's on call um the the uh, Dan mentioned this cumulative argument and what the plaintiff said is, uh, who's appellant here, is, well, there was a difference between the statements made during this meeting that occurred 10 days after this alleged incident, between fraud, constructive fraud, and negligent misrepresentation. And each of the different statements fit into different buckets. And counsel for ap- appellee was like, that is the first time I've heard that argument. Now, obviously, counsel for appellant said, no, that's not true. But we, I, I don't know. I haven't seen the briefs. Uh, he says, this is the first time I've heard this argument. I have no idea what she's talking to talking about. And the prejudice that appellant alleged is uh, as a consequence of them not having raised this argument is that she would have dropped two of the three claims to Perfect. which I think Lee rightly said, well, if that's the case, you didn't need them. That, isn't that then prove the cumulative nature of these damages and that the trial court was right to reduce the damages uh, as a result? So... I, I, I don't know where really where this is, where the, where this is going. I, I'm not sure what uh, so, counsel for appellate may have been too cute by half. If in fact, she did conjure this at the oral argument. Uh, maybe she didn't, maybe it's something they've raised before. And maybe there's a better answer, but it didn't come up at oral argument. She did describe the damages as fuzzy. That was the word she used because Good. these were emotional damages that Dr. Denman uh, suffered uh, in addition to, the concrete damages she suffered of of having you know her contract interfered with and these kinds of things, one can certainly understand having your professional reputation impugned, which is why these things have to be reported immediately so that she could have gotten tested. They're in a hospital after all. They right. have they have they have the needles and the testing and the whole bit. If she's if she has alcohol in her system, they can find out very easily.
2: Peacups, yeah, I
0: mean, yeah. They have the whole they got the whole bit. They can figure out if she's had a, if she's had a drink or two or something else, perhaps. Who knows. Um, and that's the problem. We don't know. And she she insisted she hadn't done it. They didn't have any evidence that she did. So there's your defamation because this is pretty this is essentially our telling that she's a she's professionally incompetent or committed a professional uh professional violation of her rules of professional conduct. Um, it's it's defamation per se, it sounds like to me. Um, and then you have the other more concrete damages, so then we have this this privilege and is this an issue of public interest? Now, this is one of the things that counsel for appellant argued was waived, uh, but it does seem like it would be in the public interest and not of private interest because you do have a doctor, allegedly, who's you know d- either drunk or has been drinking. It, it really doesn't much matter when you're in the care- course of delivering babies. Uh, the, you, you need sober people doing that task, it seems. Uh, so that does seem to be an issue of public concern. And the, the privilege that was claimed, this common interest privilege, may apply to telling people that, hey, um, there's a drunk person over there or a drinking person over there doing, doing baby delivery. Um, but then there's the question of is there ill will or is there malice or is there, there's a number of different ways to get around the privilege. As, and that's why that email is so important because, well, hold it. If you actually believe that, you would have acted promptly. If you actually believe that you, you know, you would have had her tested, you would not have let her drive home, you wouldn't have let her stay on call, you would have you would have done things to prevent, you wouldn't have let her do a procedure on a pregnant lady. Uh, these are all the things that you wouldn't have allowed to have occurred. Um, so, I, I, I think that they've got a problem asserting the privilege given these given these particular circumstances. It's a really complex case. They didn't get into the takings issue. Uh, yeah. on the on the pre-judgment interest. So we won't get into it too much here. But it, that is a, a subsidiary issue that is of some interest uh, as to whether that's a taking. Um, I think she may have something there. And it was funny that, it was well, that's only $73,000. Let's talk about the real money. Um, and so it must be nice to have a judgment of four, uh, four, uh, $4.75 million and not have to really worry about the $72,000 in interest that didn't run for three months Okay, I mean that, that's a good spot to be in it is but uh and then there was a question about whether it was interested to t- on top of interest and it wasn't it needed to be included in and then it needed to compound on post-judgment interest which is calculated different than pre-judgment interest uh pre-judgment interest in indiana is done uh is it discretionary with the court both on the amount of the interest that can run as well as when it runs uh as when it begins to run and it's de- it's dealt with by what's called a qualified settlement offer. If the plaintiff does a certain amount better than their last offer, then they get to claim prejudgment interest. Likewise, the defendant can get costs, certain categories of costs, if they make a qualified settlement offer and they beat that offer, they can get some costs. Not, it's not very balanced, but at least it's better than a stick in the eye. So, um, with that, Dan, uh, do you have anything else to add on the Denman case? I, d- I don't, and. Uh-
2: it'll be interesting to see what happens and I guess with that we can turn to predictions sure to go wrong
0: and none went right or
2: wrong this week No we're still at 26 three and 3 which is our, our record uh, hard to believe but you know we're going to start seeing some decisions we may see the few Supreme Court cases we covered maybe this week who knows uh, the Supreme Court of the United States has Monday and Thursday as opinion dates this week and so we'll see what uh, what
0: nuggets of we're in June. So we we may start getting non-unanimous, controversial opinions finally being issued. Uh, Everyone's been kind of unhappy with them so far when they've been issuing these procedural decisions and they've all been unanimous or narrow and and not particularly interesting to people.
2: Yeah. And in the one last week on Thursday, the 6-3 by Amy Coney Barrett, it kind of uh, shut down the five straight unanimous. But yeah, we'll start to see probably the more contested cases. So let's uh, turn to the three cases today, Pat, and- William, what do you think? Uh,
0: I, I think I think reversed. I, I, I think that they're going to say th- there's jurisdiction here, and what that means, I'm not sure, but I think they're going to say reversed.
2: I do too. Just just from the nature of the questioning and the, uh, you know, talking about the merits, I, th- I, th- I think you're right on that as well.
0: And then on Gaetans, I think we I think affirmed. I do too. I don't
2: I don't think that. Uh, this is not a good case to try to figure out, you know, try to attack the police officers for doing what in this case seems to be the right answer, right? They
0: had to check. I mean, maybe she wasn't in the Loves Park House, but they didn't know that. She might be, you know, and they they needed to find out where she was. Right. Um, I I don't, I think this is the exigency exception. I think this is an appropriate application of the exigency exception to the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement. It, It seems like the classic example. You need to find out where she's at. Yep. And then we come to Denman. I don't know what the hell – I don't know how to make heads or tails out of this with all these waiver claims. The the, the appellant's principal argument is waiver. It's hard to judge that at all you know, from an oral argument because um, the judges aren't very – are the judges aren't very interested in that.
2: No. Um, but I think if she's right, I, th- I think she gets a reversal if there was all these waivers. Uh, but – I'm not. I'm not sure who's going to get the waiver or get a reversal, just based on the questioning and and uh, yeah, hard hard case to figure I, out.
0: I I I say we're punting. Yeah, I, 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 we're punting on this one. We're we're yeah. we're we're, we're going to play. You know, we Kenny Rogers has to get a no no one to hold him and no one to fold him. What we're fold we're we're folding. We're we're not doing this one. And that's that's right. So now brings us to the rule of the four. week. <laughs> that brings us to the rule of the week, Dan.
2: Yeah, and Pat, you've written and we've discussed courts getting back to normal and uh, jury trials in person and and other arguments. Uh, Well, late last week, we learned that the Seventh Circuit, uh, via its order, has extended uh, the COVID-related virtual argument setting and format now through August 31st,
0: 2021. What thoughts do you have on that, Pat? I think Judge Rovner likes being wherever she's at and doesn't want to have to come back to Chicago during the winter. Or during the summer, for that matter, it has been obvious during the during the COVID period that uh, Judge uh, Rovner is not only not in Chicago, she's not in the time zone. Right. Uh, she may not even be in the hemisphere <laughs> because she has said it's morning there. Well, it may be morning there, but it's dark here, uh, right. and it's unclear where she's at. Uh, I, I I I joke. Uh, right. I, I think they found that they can do a good job with the system, and that they don't need people to come into the court it's as uh, so long as there is any risk uh, you know and, and I think they're they're able to conduct their business in a way that makes sense. And you know when you're dealing with only three panelists as opposed to like nine uh, or more you know five of you have the Indiana Supreme Court or seven with the Illinois Supreme Court or nine at the United States Supreme Court, when you've only got three, it's a little more manageable in terms you don't even need necessarily an organization like they do with the second district, Illinois Appellate Court, where they, they go in order um, the the of the justices as they ask questions. In the Seventh Circuit, it's a free-for-all as it had been before, and it seems to be working pretty well. I, I, uh, I think they're happy with it.
2: I agree. And you know one of the interesting things you mentioned in the Supreme Court, we still don't have any guidance on what's going to happen come October of this year, whether they're Fully in person? What you know? If live streaming will take effect? If if they are live, will they still stick with the uh, by seniority type of questioning? So a lot of questions, and I'm sure in a future episode when we get some guidance from the Supreme Court, maybe at the end of this term when, when the final decisions come out, maybe uh, Chief Justice Roberts will issue that guidance. Uh, we'll I don't know if it'll come that soon. Well.
0: I think it'll probably wait till the fall. Um, it it may. Uh, He may need to give, you know, maybe a month or so ahead of time. So he gives the Mm -hmm. advocates a heads up as to what the procedure is going to be so they can prepare. He'll need to he'll need to let them know. But I I, they may not know the circumstances until, you know, until September, uh, what they're going to be dealing with in October. Um, So but, yeah, I I will get some guidance from them because I think there's also uh, I think they're pretty happy with how this is. I would think they are. It's gone very well the way this arguments the arguments have been built uh they've been slightly longer and they've been much different because you've heard from everybody I, right. I think it's worked well agree so with that uh we'll um that's our episode for this week we'll have an episode next week there are three arguments in the indiana supreme court uh that were heard this week that we're going to talk about next week and then uh we'll, there may be some other arguments we'll see Uh, how uh, we may have two episodes next week. We'll see uh, if the schedule allows, but uh, that's what it's looking like for next week. Uh, For Dan, this is Pat. Uh, Thank you for joining another episode of the Podium and Panel Podcast.
2: I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.